In 2002, Lauren Slater published an article in uh, the New York Times Magazine. It was called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. It's kind of the reverse of common thinking, popular thinking, when it comes to the subject of, self, of self-esteem. Uh, after uh, looking at research from different countries, different counselors, different therapists, uh, different studies, Slater came to the conclusion that rather than being a help to our society, high self-esteem may be part of the problem in our society, which I know you probably haven't heard that before. You probably don't even like that. You may be mad about that if you think about it very long. It certainly is contrary to what we hear a lot in our schools, in sports. Um, It's probably contrary to what you've heard. Hundreds of books are written every year about the need for healthy self-esteem. And looking at a variety of studies, Slater came away with the thought that maybe we've got this all wrong. That maybe encouraging a high self-esteem is at the same time encouraging someone to think that everyone, everything revolves around them. And that their opinions and desires and plans and needs supersedes those of all the others. Um, it's not an uncommon thought when you look at history. That self-esteem, rather than being the answer, might be the problem. Tim Keller is a pastor and author from New York City. Keller writes in one of his books, Up until the 20th century, traditional cultures, and this is still true of most cultures in the world, always believed that too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all the evil in the world. Like all dishonesty, all cheating, all crime to some extent flows from the thought process of, well, I'm the most important person in the world. Like Everything should revolve around me. What I want is more important than what anybody else wants. So for the next 30 minutes, I'm going to tell you just how terrible a person you are. That you have no talent and no skill. You are awful. Actually, I'm not going to tell you that. That's not the point of her paper. That's not the point of the Bible, obviously. But at least as a thought process, maybe there is some validity, if not to self-esteem. We could argue what's the definition of self-esteem. Certainly the idea of an overinflated view of self can have a lot of dangers, a lot of setbacks, can create a lot of problems for people. Now, the Bible doesn't use the term self-esteem, really. Um, the Bible uses the term pride. And yet, we could argue is self-esteem the same as pride. But, but when the Bible talks about an overinflated view of oneself, an especially high view of oneself, the word that it uses is pride. And throughout much of church history and the history of Christianity, people have believed that all sin flows out of this one. 
all disobedience to God, all breaking of relationships, all misuse of power, all abuse of the people that are around us, it flows out of this thought that I'm superior to everybody else. I deserve to get things that nobody else gets. I deserve breaks that nobody else gets. I should not be punished for the things that I've done because I am superior to everybody else throughout most of history. People have looked at this sin and said, this is the one that really initiates all the other sins. If you go back and read the beginning of the Bible, the first couple of chapters, you will find that, that the first sin, the original sin, comes out of the sin of pride. The devil comes to the first humans, and his appeal is to their pride. He appeals to Eve by saying, God's not giving you everything you should get. Like, you could know everything that God does. You could be as powerful as God. Like, God's up here, and he wants to keep you down here, but you don't need to be down here. Like, you need to be up here equal with God. It was an appeal to the pride of the first humans. And we could argue that all sin that came after that first sin is an appeal in some way to our pride, that we deserve, that we ought to be treated certain ways, that we should get away with certain things. If you're new, we're finishing up a series called Seven. Uh, this is the seventh message, so it has to be the last message. You can't have an eighth message in a series on seven, right? It's like in the preacher handbook somewhere. Well, this is message seven in our series called Seven, and we've been studying the seven deadly sins. These are the sins that throughout much of church history, People have looked at and said, these are the ones, these are the inner desires, attitudes, characteristics that will lead you, open the door to all of the other sins. And I think you can make a pretty strong case that pride is the sin that opens the door to the other six. Like if, if we could get a hold of pride, we might be able to close the door on all of these other sins because it's the one that really opens the door to the rest of them. We've said that all of these sins, including pride, they're a desire. There's something on the inside of us that then motivates us to act in certain ways, act in certain sinful ways, we would say. So here, here's our definition for the day for pride. Pride is the desire for everything to be about me and for me. It's the desire... Everything to be about me and for me. And what I want is more important than what anybody else wants. My desires are more important than your desire. My goals, are they supersede your goals. My opinion is better than your opinion. My desire that everything be about me and everything be for me. Now, Pride is like a lot of the other sins we've talked about. We despise it when we see it in other people, but we have great difficulty detecting it in ourselves. And it's easy to see in the people around us most of the time. If you work with somebody that's really arrogant, you see that really clearly. Like if there's somebody in your office, if your boss, if your direct supervisor is arrogant, if somebody in your family is arrogant... 
We have crystal clear vision on arrogance in other people, but this one, maybe more than all the others, is extremely difficult to see in myself because I have reasons for why my opinions are the best, why my desires should be considered before all other desires. It's difficult to see this in me. The Old Testament gives us at least two reasons why we need to get this particular sin out of our life. This is from Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked man or the wicked person does not seek him, him being God, does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. So the psalmist said, here's one of the big dangers of pride, is it removes God from first place in your life. If you... Allow arrogance to continue in your life, it will remove God completely from your life. Because pride puts you first place. It puts me first place. It puts, it puts me at the top or at the center, whichever picture works best for you. It puts me as most important and everything I want as most important in my life and everything else revolves around me. So thousands of years ago, the psalmist said, look, here's one of the problems with pride is you don't have room for God in your life when you're arrogant because there's too much of you in your life. And usually the only time arrogant people want God in their life is when God's helping them achieve their purposes. Like, God, when you're doing what I want, I want you in my life. When you're giving me the things I want, then yeah, I want a lot of God in my life. But if you're not giving me what I want, I'm not that interested in God being in my life. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity calls it the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. My arrogance can't grow. I can't be more me, 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 me and have space for God in my life. Those two things cannot coexist in my life or your life or anybody's life because pride is the complete anti-God state of mind because I'm going to be God. I'm going to be God of my decisions. I'm going to be God of my pleasures. I'm going to be God of my future. I'm going to be God of my direction. And there's no room for a God that wants control of all of that. Here's the other warning that we get in the Old Testament. It's that pride, sooner or later, ends badly. We get this message over and over, especially in the Proverbs. Yeah, you can be you can be all about you, but here's the warning. At some point, that's going to end badly for you. Probably the, the most well-known Bible verse about pride is Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. It's a verse we love quoting about other people, right? It's like 99.9999% times anybody's ever used this verse. It was about somebody else. Pride goes before destruction. Well, that's, that's a principle, that's a rule that applies to all of us. That eventually, this focus on me, this focus on what I want is going to get exposed, and very often with this particular sin, it gets exposed in some public way. The downfall is where other people see it. Another verse, Proverbs 11:2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. When pride comes, it can exist for a little while, 
But here's the principle from the the book of Proverbs. Eventually, at some point, disgrace is going to come. And the proverb writer doesn't give us a timeline. We'd all love a timeline, right? Is that six days? Is that six weeks? Is that six years? Is that 10 years? Is that six months? Like, when is it from the time that pride starts until disgrace comes? I'd like to know that timeline. It doesn't give us a timeline. He just says, here's a principle that works in the world. Where arrogance grows, it's going to exist for a little while, but there will come a time when destruction comes, when disgrace comes. And like I said, very often when it comes to this particular sin, that disgrace is a public one. One more, Proverbs 29, 23. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. Same principle. Arrogance can exist for a while in a person, an organization. It can exist for a little while, but eventually, pride's going to run its course, and it's going to bring someone low. And if you know someone who's arrogant, we all know someone who's arrogant, right? Because it's easy to detect in other people. If you know somebody who's prideful, you're thinking, yes, like I can't wait for that day, right? I want to see them fall, and I'm ready for them to come down. But maybe the verse isn't just for them. I mean, the verse is for me too. Like, What little places in my life is arrogance getting a foothold where I'm the center of everything, where everything is defined by me? Nobody else gets to have a story because the stories all have to be about me. Nobody else gets to have a crisis because the crisis has to come back to being about my crisis is more important than your crisis. Like Everything has to funnel its way back to me. All of these verses about pride and downfall, pride and being brought low, pride and destruction, they're they're not just for the arrogant boss that we all work for, right? They're for my heart, and they're for your heart. Paul writes about this in the New Testament. He says, "For For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Don't think of yourself more highly than you are. Don't get puffed up. The New Testament word for pride is is smoke, filled with smoke. Don't be full of smoke because it's not real. It's going to get blown away. Like, don't keep puffing yourself up with this fake bravado, this fake arrogance. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Notice he didn't say, think lowly of yourself. That's not what he said. He didn't say, think that you're terrible. Paul said, look, have an objective, reasonable view of who you are where you fit in the world, who's around you, where your gifts are. Just have a reasonable assessment, a sober, objective assessment of who you are. Paul's going to go on from this verse, and he's going to talk about the church. If you keep reading past this verse, he's talking to the church, and he's going to say, look, in the church, there are people with lots of different gifts, and we all need each other. You need this person's strength, and they need that person's strength, and we all need to work together. So before he gets into that, he says, look, just just think objectively about who you are, because it's not all about you. 
You're not the only one doing great things in your organization. There are other people that are helping, and you need to appreciate the fact that there are other people. This is one of the hard things for arrogant people to do, right? I think one of the hardest things is just admit there are actually other people in the world. Like other people do exist for the arrogant person. That's a great place for them to start is with just a simple recognition. I'm not the only one in the world. There are other people around me. So Paul says, see yourself reasonably, soberly, objectively. Realize you're not the only one. It's interesting that Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to followers of Jesus or people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And he's commanding them to be careful with pride. C.S. Lewis again in Mere Christianity writes, It's a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. Like the worst one, the one that spawns all the others. It's terrible that we see that particular one pop up among God's people so many times. Among the church, among the body of Christ. Pop up in the form of someone thinking, well, like I'm just a way better Christian than everybody else around me. Like I'm doing way better with this whole Christian thing than everybody else in my family or everybody else in my office or everybody else that I know, quite frankly. The arrogance that pops up in God's people to say, well, nobody works as hard as I, nobody serves as much as I do, nobody cares as much as I do. This is a terrible thing. I would agree with Lewis. It is a terrible thing that this, the worst of all sins, pops up so often in the church. Have a reasonable, objective view of who you are and what you contribute and what the contributions of other people are. And maybe that's the biggest difference between the proud and the humble. Maybe the biggest difference between being proud and being humble is that the humble person just genuinely cares for other people. They just genuinely care for somebody else's story or somebody else's contribution. Or they take the time to know somebody rather than constantly being concerned that other people are knowing them. They just care about other people. I keep referring to Lewis. His chapter on pride is great in mere Christianity. Read it sometime. He writes, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man or person, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. When you meet someone who's humble, typically <clears throat> they don't tell you all the time that they're humble. Right? They don't even tell you all the time that I'm really not that good. Don't compliment me. Don't say nice things to me. Don't congratulate me. I'm nobody. I didn't do anything. They're not poor-mouthing themselves all the time. 
They're not telling everybody how awful a person they are. Typically what they're doing is they're enjoying relationships with other people. They're connecting to other people. They're caring for other people. They're reaching out to other. They're listening to other people and other people's story and other people's lives and what other people are going through. We've talked about prescriptive virtues like how do we counteract these sins in our life. Here's my suggestion for pride. Just have a genuine compassion for others. Just genuinely care about other people. Don't, don't fake it. Don't, don't try to pretend. Don't, don't try to muster up some concern for other people. Like genuinely ask God to give you a concern for other people so that we would get our eyes off of ourselves. So that we would get our eyes off of what people should be doing for us. You see, the cure for pride is not thinking about being humble. The cure for pride is thinking about somebody else. It's not thinking about how do I act more humbly or how do I stop being so arrogant. The cure for pride is asking, who can I care about? Like, whose life can I find out about? Who can I connect with? Who can I encourage? Who can I build up? Who can I spend time with? It's the difference between those who are proud and those who are humble. I like the way Lewis says, if you meet a humble person, probably what you're going to think is, boy, they just seem to enjoy life so easily. They just seem to enjoy people so easily. Because none of us have never left a conversation with an arrogant person who talked about themselves the whole time and everything came back to them and everything you said came back to who they were and what they were going through and they never listened to you. No one ever walked away from that conversation and thought, well, that's just a really happy person. You never thought that. Now, you've never been in a meeting with someone who kind of sucks all the oxygen out of the room because they talk the whole time and their voice has to be heard and we, we have to do it their way. And then you walked away and thought, well, that's a really well-adjusted person. I bet they have lots of friends. But when you meet a humble person, somebody that cares about other people, that's, that's exactly what you feel. Not so much that they're humble, but that they care for people other than themselves. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus' ministry had been ramping up. Crowds were beginning to amass. Passover was going to be in a few days. There were renewed interest in what Jesus might accomplish at any given moment because he had just brought Lazarus back from the dead. There were people convinced that this was the moment that Jesus was, gonna, was going to establish his earthly rule and reign and become king over that part of the world, maybe over the whole world, and they couldn't wait. But the life of Jesus was not one where he came to rule. It's not one where he came to show his power or to flex his muscle. When Paul writes about the life of Jesus in Philippians 2, Paul describes Jesus' life as one of continually lowering himself. Emptying himself is the word. Jesus continued emptying himself 
for his father and for us. He left heaven, emptied himself of the power and the the abilities that he had as God in heaven and restricted himself to human form, came down. The Bible says he didn't just become a human, but he became a servant. He became the lowest of humans when he was here. He didn't demand special attention. He didn't go from being king in heaven to being king on earth. He came down to serve. And when you read his life, the thing you find consistently is just how much he cared for the people that he met. How many conversations he had with people that nobody else would have had a conversation with. How many times he stopped what he was doing, the direction he was going because somebody else was there that needed him. This was his life, emptying himself, lowering himself, meeting people where they were. Paul says he lowered himself even to the point of death. Like he didn't just come and live out a human existence and zip back to heaven. Like he was willing to go through death in a human form, and not just any death, Paul says he lowered himself to the most painful, most disgraceful, most embarrassing death possible at that time, crucifixion. A death reserved for criminals. Jesus' whole life was about humbling himself. And on Palm Sunday, as the crowds gathered, Jesus made a a strategic move as to how he would be seen that day. This is how Matthew describes it. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you were a king back then, if, if you were a conquering king, you would ride in on the, the largest war horse you could find and you would parade down the streets. People would look up to you. And they would cheer for you. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, not just on a donkey, but Matthew says it was a young donkey, never been ridden before, so young that the mom had to ride along next to Jesus and the donkey just so the little donkey wouldn't freak out. And Jesus rides in humbly. He wasn't wasn't given the fist pump on the way down. Like the parade wave to everybody. He wasn't doing one of these. It was a demonstration that a prince of peace had come. Not someone looking to lord over people, but looking to to serve. Looking, Looking to meet. To speak into their life. To get to know them. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem that day as a way of saying, that this, is, this has been my life. My life has not been about 
being the most powerful. It's been submitted to my Father's plan and the redemption of people. My life has been about saying to my Father, whatever your will is, I'm submitted to it. Even in his final hours, just, just before he's betrayed, he's going to be crucified the next day. And Jesus prays, not my will, yours be done. I am I'm submitted to my Father. I am submitted to the creator of the universe and his plan. Jesus lives his whole life in humility and submission. And you and I will each come to a point in our life when we're going to have to decide how we'll live. We'll come to a point in our life where we have to decide, am I going to live for me? Am I going to demand my way and my rights and this is the way I want it and this is the way I think it should be done? Or am I going to submit my life to a bigger plan? Am I going to humble my life underneath the only one who deserves to be on the throne of my life? You're going to make that choice with your life. I'm going to make that choice with my life. You see, we, we could live all of our days for ourselves. We could live all of our days about us, getting enough, getting ahead enough, preserving, protecting. It's all about me. It's all about what I get. And at the end of our life, we're going to die and be forgotten, and it would have been a very, very small life that we would have lived. Or we can make a decision at some point as a teenager, as a, as a child, as a young adult, as a senior adult, as a single person, as a married person. We could make the decision at some point in our life. My life is going to be lived for a greater purpose because I'm going to submit it to the God that created me and has a purpose for my life. You see, I'm not here to tell you how awful you are. I'm not here to tell you what a terrible person you are, and you should have low self-esteem. I'm not here to tell you how awful you are. I'm here to tell you how wonderful Jesus is. I'm here to tell you that the Son of God humbled himself because he wanted to honor his Father's plan, and he wanted to reach you, and he wanted to reach me. And he was willing to do whatever it took so that we could be brought back to God, so that we could be brought into relationship with His Father. And so He laid down His life. See, we can talk about the seven deadly sins, and we can encourage each other to avoid them. We can encourage each other to push back and push them away. And we can spend seven weeks talking about sin, because through Jesus, that sin can't overcome us. That sin can't defeat us. We we can look sin in the face and know that there's a part of us that still struggles with it. There's a part of us that still has to fight against it. But in the end, all of the sin, 7, 77 million, however many there are, all of the sins of the world were placed on Jesus for us. 
And he won victory over them forever. So how are you going to live your life? For you? Is it going to all be about you and for you? Because if so, you're going to get to the end of your life and be very disappointed. Because there's a God that loves you, created you, sent his son to redeem you, who has a plan that's been going on since before time started, and it's going to go on long after time ends, and he invites you into it. He just says, come on, you humble yourself and step into my plans, and I'll show you a life bigger than you could ever imagined. I hope you've done that. As we're heading toward Easter this week, Good Friday, Easter, all of the celebration that's going to take place, I hope you're entering into this Easter season knowing Jesus has forgiven sin and set us free and redeemed us. And if not, today's the day. Today's the day to say to your heavenly Father, I'm not living for me anymore. I'm submitted to you. I believe Jesus died for all of my sin, the seven and all the other ones. I believe Jesus died to take that sin away, and I'm going to trust him today. If you've never done that, you need to do that today. God, thank you that in Jesus we saw, we met, we know a humble servant, someone who laid his life down. He didn't come demanding. He was submitted to the plan and purposes of you. And thank goodness, those plans and purposes included the redemption and forgiveness of us. And so even though we, we try to avoid sin, we, we want to run from sin, we have no doubt that sin has no power over us. Sin can't crush us because Jesus took our sin to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.